welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as our crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name's Jera, and thanks for tuning in. Today with us, we have a little bit of a different format than usual, but I'm super excited about it. Um, we basically have an awesome panel, and I'm going to introduce them, and we are going to be talking about Indigenous representation in Star Trek. So uh, first, we have Sierra Adair Tatsiwopa Api. That was great. <laughs> we also have Molly Swain. Hello. And Chelsea Vowell. Hi there. And David Holkin. Hello. So before we get into our main topic, I just uh, have to do our, our usual housekeeping to remind you about the Women at Warp Patreon. Women at Warp is a listener-supported podcast, and if you are able to support us and want to help out, you can uh, donate as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash women at warp and in exchange you get access to cool exclusive bonus content and watch alongs and things like that so hop on over to patreon.com slash women at warp that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash women at warp uh to help us keep the show going all right so um as I said, we're going to be talking about Indigenous representation in Star Trek, and I wanted to get our guests to tell us a little bit about yourselves and your relationship to Star Trek. So I'll start with Sierra. Well, I've been a science fiction fan all my life, and in particular with Star Trek, since the original show aired on NBC. Uh, what fascinated me the most about the show was the fact that um, there was a woman of color on the bridge. She was a bridge officer. That to me was just phenomenal. And it was, it really meant that there was a possibility of being able to be more than just the secretary or the teacher or housekeeper or things like that. And despite the, the stereotypes of the women in the miniskirts and things, it did provide a great role model. And even in the first Indian episode, the Paradise Syndrome, um, which had its own issues with uh, stereotypes, but at least it showed indigenous people that were living normal lives rather than running around killing the settlers or fighting with the cavalry or the cowboys. And you actually authored a really awesome book that I have plugged several times on this podcast called Indian Representation in TV Science Fiction, First Nations Voices Speak Out. Is that correct? Um, Indian Stereotypes. Yes. Yes. And it is awesome. Um, could you tell us a little bit about that process? Uh, yes. Basically, when uh, Voyager was airing, um, several friends and I would gather to watch it. And two of them were from Plains Nations and some from some other nations. And of course, this led to some very lively discussions about the stereotypes that were depicted through the character of Chakotay and from where these stock stereotypes actually originated. Um, being from diverse indigenous nations, we each found different inaccuracies and brought them to light in, in our discussions uh, of the various episodes. And this kind of sparked my curiosity and led me to seek out other Indian episodes in TV science fiction, obviously my favorite genre. So I was just ecstatic that Nick at Night and TV Land were airing these vintage science fiction series. So I started looking for them and taping them and um, showing them to my friends and us discussing them. And all of this led to what eventually became my book, Indian Stereotypes in TV Science Fiction. And it gave indigenous peoples in particular a voice in what was going on in Hollywood and what was going on in television and 
there wasn't much of an avenue for indigenous peoples to actually put their voice out there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a really cool book and everyone should read it. And we're going to talk probably a little bit more about it uh, later, but um, let me get to Molly. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, so hi, Molly. I'm from uh, Calgary in Alberta, and I'm one half of the podcast Métis in Space, which I do with Chelsea. So it's an Indigenous feminist science fiction podcast, and we do uh, what we do is very similar, actually, to Sierra's book. Basically, we we hang out, we get together, you know, in between Chelsea's pregnancies, we both drink wine, <laughs> or I just drink wine, and uh, when we're a little bit tipsy together, we we watch a science fiction uh, TV episode or movie that has something to do with Indigenous people and Indigenous representation, and then we just talk about it, usually eviscerate it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So my relationship to Star Trek is 100% my favorite show. Uh, I did not actually grow up watching it. Um, I came to it as an adult, but was completely and immediately hooked on it. Uh, I would have to say TOS is my my super fave, with DS9 coming in a close second because of how they talk about colonialism and that mm. decolonization and all of the the politics and the drama and how that kind of thing might play out. Yeah, I'm trying to think of what else. I just love Star Trek so much. I know you I'm watch so it excited. so much. I watch it every day, <laughs> like literally I love every every single day. Just binge watches episodes. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's important. It's it's good self care. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, and what about you, Chelsea? Uh, so, Tansi Chelsea Valmitsigasoni, women to Sakaiknik Nitotsin. So, I'm from Lac Saint Anne, uh, Alberta. And uh, my relationship to Star Trek is so I, you know, I didn't grow up with uh, the original series so much. I mean, there was there was some reruns on, but we just had Farmer Vision, so we had like whatever three channels, uh, and and so. The Next Generation became our sort of family show to watch, like one of the few things that I would sit down with my family and watch and and just really became hooked on that. And I would say that's sort of like the origin of my love of sci-fi was was definitely like The Next Generation. So from 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 there flowed everything else. <laughs> that's awesome. And yes, everyone should definitely check out Métis in Space. It is an awesome podcast and super fun to listen to and just provides, I think, a really important perspective on a lot of this media that we know and love. So David, uh, do you want to tell people a little bit about yourself? I mean, I know David because he used to co-host the All Things Track podcast with our Women at Warp crew member, Grace. So that was originally how we met. But uh, what else should the audience know about you and your relationship to Star Trek? Uh, well, first, uh, my connection to this topic is that uh, I am of Native uh, descent. I have mostly on my uh, paternal side, I have Apache from my paternal grandfather and uh, Cherokee from my paternal grandmother. And then on my mom's side, it's all Spanish and Armenian and other things. But I do get uh, Native heritage from my father's side, but I wasn't raised into it. It was something I had to seek out on my own in my teens and twenties. And that was a whole journey of discovery. Uh, my connection to Star Trek, um, it was basically through my mom. I kind of say I was a Trekkie in the womb. Um, she grew up in the sixties and she's told this story before and I'll do it in a very condensed version of it. But, uh, she was in high school right around the Vietnam war. And a lot of their friends were shipping over, there and every day on the news they would you know cover the war but they would also in the local news say who was killed you know recently and it was a lot of people that they knew either from school or the community and it just really hit her hard and so she totally uh just disconnected from the media she was raising my older brother and then um on a chance she happened to find star trek and 
it just was an instant click for her that she saw the inclusion, the diversity. And she, she said that she could see like the, the surface of it, the cool zap guns and, you know, spaceships, but she could also catch the, uh, the Roddenberry message behind it. And so for me personally, I just grew up with Star Trek in the house. I, I grew up watching the reruns in the seventies, then the animated series. I was there day one for, um, the next generation day one ds9 and i've just pretty much uh star trek has been a part of my life uh ever since then and uh recently uh also part of trek radio which is a 24 tw- mm-hmm. 7 it's a 24 7 online radio station dedicated to star trek and the greater sci-fi community and that's just furthered my love of trek even more cool so i want to let you guys you know Go whichever way you want with this discussion, but just start off with some questions to kind of get us started. So, Sierra, I already asked you a little bit about your book, but I was wondering what you thought was some of the most important feedback from your Indigenous focus group participants when you were doing this book. Well, when I was growing up, um, my parents did everything they possibly could to de-emphasize our Indianness because it was um, really a um, rough time to be other and in particular to be indigenous other. Um, my father was Choctaw and Cherokee. My mother was Cherokee. And um, it was it was very difficult. And so when I was talking to other people about Star Trek and particularly the, the Indian episodes in science fiction, the main feedback was particularly with the Star Trek episodes that showing that indigenous peoples and cultures were alive and well in the 23rd and the 24th centuries was something that was very important to people that um, had been basically growing up trying to stay invisible and that cultures were practiced underground. And to have that ability to say, yes, we're going to be there, we're going to be a part of the future was a really important thing for all of the people that I interviewed uh, for my book and uh, in between times as well. So I think that was one of the main things. But along with that was the questioning about the origins of the stereotypes and why they were so pervasive and the the fact that, that I had participants that their emotions ranged anywhere from sadness to outright anger about the lack of respect that was shown indigenous traditions and cultures within the episodes, especially the lack of preparation for ceremonies mm-hmm. and the, the, the trying to display some aspects of sacred ceremonies um, on television and the participants really wishing that the TV shows would just flat steer clear of sacred ceremonies altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that you talked a bit about the Paradise, or not the Paradise Syndrome, um, Journey's End, the TNG episode. And it seemed like overall participants kind of like liked a lot about that episode and how it showed defiance to colonialism, but that there was a big concern around Wesley taking part in this sacred ceremony oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. then having it all engineered by this white guy, the Traveler. <laughs> yes, Th- uh, that was definitely one of the areas where they were um, just incinged that th- that this Indian person who who the actor was actually native, which was wonderful, but but then he he transforms into this traveler who is a white person that and then then chooses Wesley Crusher, the white guy. <laughs> 
<laughs> the whitest guy. Always, always. <laughs> to, to impart this indigenous knowledge to, it was, it was, uh, very, in, in something that had been up to that point so well done as far as um, touching on issues of removal and um, even the planet Darvon 5 welcoming the indigenous people when, when they move there and the importance of that in that conversation that Picard had with the indigenous council. And the, that part was being so well done and then then you get the traveler and Wesley <laughs> and it's just like Ugh. so it was kind of that was the pinnacle of the best of the episodes that then ended up showing some of the aspects of the worst parts <laughs> of the indigenous episodes for sure does anyone else have any thoughts on journey's end you want to chime in with at this point Oh my goodness. So, <laughs> so many, many thoughts. thoughts. <laughs> I think like when Chelsea and I did the episode for the podcast, um, I think a lot of what we were focusing on actually was kind of like the, the liberal humanist multicultural um, politics of the Federation and of Starfleet and how those play out in real life. One of the things that I find really interesting about Star Trek and particularly Roddenberry's um, specific version of Star Trek is I think it really shows the weakness of that kind of like liberal humanist tolerance based framework, right? And like Journey's End, I think is a really, really good episode to highlight what some of those limitations are. Um, Cause you see Picard who is very much, you know, representative of all of those values. Um, you know, he's like stuffy white guy. He has this really specific sense of morality. Uh, he's a diplomat. He's an explorer, you know, all of these things that uh, the Federation really, really values. And now he's trying to navigate all of these things. And he, you know, he himself, he's such a nice guy. He really wants to help, but he's constrained by all yeah. of these outside forces. You know, like, what does he do? How does he make these decisions? Like, oh no, you know, and it's all about kind of his angst, you know, while Wesley Crusher is kind of finding himself and right. his like special Indian powers, <laughs> you have Picard on the other end trying to navigate all of these politics. But also his family history, mm -hmm. right? He's just so gutted to find out that like that some of his ancestors were involved in removals centuries ago, right? And, and it's just, so it's just talking about this stain, this, you know, on his hands and everything. Should I be, should I feel bad about that? Should I feel bad about what my ancestors did? Which is, you know, like the typical white problem, right? Like, are we responsible for the sins of our ancestors while he's like in the middle of the exact same situation, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it's not even about the sins of your ancestors. It's what you're still doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And yeah, and also the way that, you know, these justifications happen. And, and even though, as Chelsea mentioned, it's cyclical, right? It like happens mm -hmm. over and over again. The justifications are different, right? The, the scene is different. The, the environment's different. Now there's phasers. Now there's warp, um, you know, everything else. But the justifications know, again, are not that different. No, they're you not. You know, it's still about like protecting, you know, it's, it's couched in these terms of like, we're, you know, we have to make these hard decisions and we're protecting them. And, you know, we're, we're taking their best interests into heart as much as we can within mm -hmm. the wider sphere of everybody. We have to worry about everybody, right? We can't yeah. just worry about it's the, the greater good. The yeah, greater good. Like, like the, the liberalism <laughs> of the greater good good, right? <laughs> Justifying all of these kind of like horrific things that end up going on, but mm. always centered around sort of like the, you know, the, the white people, mm. you know, what are they doing? How are they feeling? How are they responding to these things? It's the colonialism. It's, mm -hmm. it's these two colonial powers making these arbitrary decisions about where the lines and the boundaries are going to be. It, it's the same thing between the United States and Canada oh, yeah. when they put the border in there. And it was yeah. literally through the Mohawk nation. 
and the, then telling the Haudenosaunee, well, the, the, the border's going to be 12 feet in the air so that you can <laughs> flow freely back and forth across the border. And it's, that's, that's a bunch of baloney. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, it's like don't don't walk on stilts across the border. You know, okay, you're gonna have problems. <laughs> exactly. Oh man, that'd be an yes. awesome part of J Treaty. <laughs> you, have to, you have to cross the border on stilts. Yeah. Yeah, um, and I mean it's an interesting contradiction because um, you know we have the Prime Directive, which in this, this isn't really applying to this episode, but it seems to be coming out of this liberal humanist viewpoint that. Um, you know, we understand we did bad things, so here's how we would prevent this in the future. But then this episode kind of shows, like, it doesn't actually. And mm-hmm. even still, like, I mean, the Prime Directive is a big topic, but it, it it implies that we still are on the right path and the superior path. Yeah, this this idea of, like, the linear progression, right? Like, this development. You know, we're mm-hmm. always moving forward. We're always pushing further. The final frontier keeps, you know... Like, we need to keep pushing towards it, you know, for these specific reasons of progress. Yeah, I really like the thing about uh, the border making, too, because that's that's really interesting because they don't show the Indigenous people in that episode basically doing anything but being on the defensive, mm-hmm. right? Where when you look at a lot of, like, the histories, particularly the Canada and the U.S., like, Indigenous people, when that border was laid down, they really started playing with it. And they really started mobilizing that border and building power around that border to, to maneuver like politically and economically yes. um, to ensure like, you know, safety and prosperity and et cetera, et cetera, as much as they could. Right. But a lot of the time in these episodes, it's indigenous people are being threatened in some way. And so they're on the defensive, right. Yeah. It's always like protectionist. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's, there's another layer. There's two things going on when I watch that episode, because there's definitely the, uh, the, the colonization and the two outside forces trying to make decisions for the native people. But the other theme that is going on is forced relocation. And that's another theme that comes up in, uh, with the film, the insurrection, where they talk about mm. moving, moving the Baku off of, and they're mm. not, they're not depicted as natives or indigenous, but that forced relocation theme comes up again. And that was another, another layer that I really appreciated being addressed, but not, you know, enacted that they didn't have to go through with the forced relocation. I like, Basically, Journey's End is my favorite of the native indigenous episodes, but, but I still yeah, have some great. issues with it because, and there's a, there's a larger issue that I, that maybe we could get into later on, but one, uh, the, 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 the indigenous characters, and especially what we later learn is the traveler, he, he's talking about specific aspects of the, of their culture that he's telling to Wesley, and he mentions basically a sweat lodge type scenario, but he calls it a habak or something. And I started looking up these words, like, what is he saying? What nation does that come from? Mm-hmm. And I couldn't place it. And now it's because they are pretty much made up. But then at the same time, when he, when Anthwara is talking to Picard, he mentions the specific uh, Pueblo rev- revolt of uh, 1680 mm-hmm. and the Spanish and New Mexico. So I'm like, that's, sp- that's real history. Like they're tying it into actual reality of us history. But then on the flip side, um, they're kind of like fudging what they're telling to Wesley. And maybe that's because the traveler really don't know what he's talking about. I mean, there's quite theories about that, but I remember reading that initially they wanted to make the whole uh, episode revolve specifically around the Hopi and the Kachina dolls, Mm -hmm. but then it got changed in later in the script. And um, so there's even within the best episode uh, for native representation, indigenous representation, there's still some issues there too. Yeah, that homogenization is like 
really, really classic. I think from what, you know, we've been able to see anyway across science fiction and fantasy and speculative fiction, right? It's like, because it's, it's not really necessarily about indigenous people as people. It's, it's what we represent as symbols mm-hmm. and what, and like, you know, because sci-fi, the good sci-fi is, is all about working through different problems, right? It's about people working together through different problems and trying to answer big questions, right? And so, you know, living in um, ongoing colonial societies, indigenous people are still one of those big issues that, you know, the mainstream is trying to wrap its head around and, and figure out how to essentially deal with the, you know, quote unquote Indian problem. And so it's not about us as people who are like full human beings who, you know, have our own agency. It's about you know, what, what do we represent? What are these images? And so like, we're, we're kind of this exotic, almost like a homegrown exotic that like, you can Mm. slap these aesthetics on and you can like make up, you know, languages and you can make up whole tribes and whole nations sometimes. Right. And, you know, it doesn't matter because it's not actually about us. We're just a plot device, right? It's either to make, make people feel guilty or to like provide redemption, you know, and in Wesley's case, like to, you know, it's always the white guy who becomes more Indian than the Indians, right? Like he's, we're, we're how you find yourself. (laughs) we are another right and, yeah. and then he out indians the indians which is always always <laughs> kirk is the perfect example with that oh my oh, god that was so great yeah he's met our indian than the indians are oh. i am karak <laughs> <laughs> well and, and that's another thing he it, it to me that also echoed the stories about the the aztecs and the South American uh, indigenous people treating the conquistadors as gods. And then you mm-hmm. see Kirk actually come out of the obelisk and they're calling him a god. But mm-hmm. it, again, it, it's like hit and miss because they're trying to be, you know, positive about it or, or inclusive. But then in that episode, um, Paradise Syndrome, when they first see the natives, the, the indigenous people across the water, Spock references the Navajo, Mohican and Delaware. But then they're all in generic fringe, you know, made up attire. There's teepees, which none of the three nations that he mentioned (laughs) lived in teepees. (laughs) So it's like, you know, they, they're mentioning real native nations again, but then they're also like, they fall short again. And then another thing that really rubbed me the wrong way, even back when I was seeing it, you know, in reruns is that Spock also calls them some of the more advanced, uh, try, yes. the yeah. more advanced and peaceful tribes. But then later in the episode, Kirk is explaining to Miramani the concept of irrigation and then yeah. Food, yeah. food preservation, <laughs> yeah. which to me, it's like, for one, native indigenous people already knew about agriculture and, and uh, irrigation and all pre- food preservation. But then for Spock to call them, these are the more advanced natives. And then Kirk still has to teach them about an oil lamp yeah. and irrigation. I was just like, it just, yeah. And she can't take off his shirt. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, well, I mean, that's the thing though, right? I think it, it speaks more to what, you know, to what settlers and, and invaders um, think as being like good qualities of the good Indians than, yeah. you know, what's actually going on, right? Like the more advanced and peaceful tribes probably in this case mean the ones who are like more welcoming to the colonizer. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Not not necessarily saying that the Mohicans and the Delaware were, um, but, you know, that's that's sort of the good Indian. Right. They, they also calls it pointing the finger. <laughs> right. So like the white people point the finger and these are the good Indians and these are the bad Indians. And Miramani in particular is like always the good Indian. She's yeah. passive. She's like hypersexualized. She wants to take off his shirt, even though she can't figure it out. Like, <laughs> right. Everything, everything the settler wants. Yeah. Oh, yes. She, she's the ultimate fantasy of the Indian woman, even right down to the fact that the Indian woman who marries the white guy must die. 
It is, it's yeah. a, it is a given in Hollywood. They must die. Yeah, and I, I actually read um, something about that. Apparently, originally she wasn't going to die, but the network made them rewrite the script because they were worried about implications of miscegenation. Of course. Right? So, like, this half-breed kid being born and then Kirk <laughs> just, like, effing off the planet, right? Right. They couldn't have that, so she has to die. Exactly. Wild. And then, of course, she dies because her, you know, sort of spurned lover and half the rest of the people there decide to stone them to death. So it goes against this whole, you know, image they were trying to create anyway of like, look at this peaceful paradise. But actually, they're all just savages. Like, yeah. it's, but that's, it's, yeah, yeah. But that's the thing is there's the, the fear of the, of the savage Indian, of the inherent violence of indigenous peoples is always there. It's, it's there like in every episode that we've seen, you know, and, and it's even when Picard is talking about like moving them and the relocation and all that underneath is that fear that the, you know, the natives are going to get restless. Mm -hmm. And so it's all about like, um, it's all about sort of like controlling the inherent violence of indigenous peoples, you know, and it never looks at like, you know, why might indigenous peoples react in certain ways it's just like that that's just you know our state of being is we can only we can only be violent and it's always there bubbling under the surface so even when we're just getting together playing bingo or whatever you know it's like the threat of violence is there oh yes anytime that that indigenous people gather it it makes the white people uncomfortable Mm. oh totally yes totally and I was going to say, like, you know, bingo can get pretty rowdy. Oh, yeah. Guys, you know, man. Have you seen somebody who calls out too soon? <laughs> no, not good. Not no, good. No. Have, you seen, have you seen all those old ladies oh, with, yeah, like, 12 yeah. bingo cards? Yeah. Like, yeah. you got to have a perimeter. <laughs> you need to get elbowed to the face. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Chakotay. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, Chakotay is the only major Indigenous recurring character we've had in Star Trek. Which is kind of disappointing. I feel like um, Indigenous and LGBT representation are the areas where Star Trek has fallen down the most. And there seems to be like there's efforts to rectify the LGBTQ situation, but not so much on the Indigenous front. But Chakotay, trying to do a good thing. How do you guys think it worked? Um, I particularly want to start with Chelsea and Molly and your thoughts on Tattoo. Oh, man. (laughs) It's got – there's so much packed in there, too. And and what I – Okay, what I do appreciate about this is that it's it's a slightly different narrative than than we have, you know, in Paradise Syndrome, and it's uh, sort of this this idea of of the of the native person who is torn between modernity and and their own culture, and so kind of it kind of very clumsily deals with that. Um, but he's just like he's such a little turd as a kid, right? <laughs> he's just like insufferable as i don't know if you notice but as like children are in in star trek by the way like they're all just these insufferable little turds except for jake sisko oh i like jake sisko okay i would totally be buds with that (laughs) but anyway that's that's another discussion another discussion but yeah and and so you know he's 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 sort of like oh i don't i don't want to do this i want to be with my buddies and everything but then like as an adult he just suddenly sort of gets this opportunity to rediscover the the wealth and 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 meaning of his culture and he just like goes all in you know just like he's like right i have these memories and they're going to come forward and now i'm going to be the super indian and and just like redemption as the most indian indian ever yeah it's yeah it's also i i'm i feel like i'm probably the only person who didn't know this um but i didn't realize that robert beltran wasn't indigenous until like a year ago (laughs) 
I was devastated. Yeah, it he is, was, it is devastating. Yeah, because you, you catch a little bit of Voyager on the sci-fi channel or whatever, like reruns and whatnot. He was the only like indigenous person that I ever saw regularly on TV. And so even though I wasn't a Star Trek fan until adulthood, I always had this sort of like connection with him. I felt, you know, I was like, at least there's one of us out there. (laughs) And then realizing that the actor wasn't even indigenous himself. I was like, Oh, we can't even have this one thing. (laughs) This one very problematic thing. He didn't particularly like the character that he was playing either. (laughs) Which I mean, I could, I could see why I, you know, he he doesn't have much of a personality. No, he's you know? just he's all he's all reaction and rage and and, and like, ceremony and ceremony. Oh my gosh, yes. Yeah. And tattoo. We should also talk about the ancient aliens thing. Oh, right? oh yeah, I love the fact it, this that trope that trope of like you know indigenous peoples couldn't have come up with it. It had to be aliens. I personally love the fact that we're descended from aliens. I mean, it, it's great. It allows me to do all sorts of like wild things that nobody else can do, you know, like just if, if I need to like heat up my fried chicken, I just have to look at it with my alien powers and it's like steaming and ready for me. Yeah. If I want to just go into the vacuum of space, bam, there I am. Yeah. I just yeah. went there right now and came back. It was great. <laughs> it's cold, but you know, I wore a sweater. <laughs> it's fine. Gosh, thank you God know? for the aliens who made us. <laughs> yeah, but there's, but there is this idea, right? That until contact with, with Europeans, essentially indigenous people, firstly, like didn't, weren't able to like contact each other. You know, we don't really have relationships <laughs> among ourselves, you know, and certainly not ones that span, you know, the continents, continents no which way. is obviously totally false because, you know, there are all sorts of trading relationships and <laughs> networks and stuff, but we also couldn't, we really couldn't develop or design anything that settler people would consider impressive or worthwhile at all. Right. It had to come from outside. It had to be given to us mm. specifically, you know, not, not by, you know, any of our, our own, figures or uh historic people or you know whatever you want to call it spirits etc it always has to come from you know beyond something that the white people can explain with their white vocabulary and so then that gets translates translated into this alien thing also they're literally white guys the aliens are literally white guys <laughs> yeah and and they're the ones that gave us litter gave us the language that that was mm-hmm. brought out in this episode of tattoo it was the oh aliens gosh, that yeah. gave us language we didn't have yeah, it. we're just Sitting around, kind of grunting at each other. But we had a deep respect for nature. Yes. We just yes. couldn't express it. Yeah. It's just, they, they just knew somehow. We couldn't yeah. actually tell them about it, but they, they just saw us and they're, they're like, like, wow. Oh, yeah. Much respect. Yes. Much nature. <laughs> it's all that grunting. That is a very respectful grunting. Except Chakotay didn't like the insects. <laughs> <laughs> Not very respectful, Chakotay. No. He's, he was very disappointing to those aliens. <laughs> he, for, he, yeah, because remember, he was supposed to have the power of the memory, but yeah. he lost the power of the memory because of the trauma of colonization. Yeah. So he, he is. He's ultimately less Indian than his ancestors. Well, even which the aliens. also is interesting. When Shakote gets there and meets them, they're, they're behaving in true indigenous fashion as according to settlers that because they're the children of the forest and they're shy and they're scared of the, these new people coming in and then then they because the Shakote says oh we're fine and no you know we're not going to hurt you they, they somehow just instantly believe it's like based on what they're so innocent. Well, he t- doesn't he take off his clothes? Yes. And put yes. It on so that the is, yes. That's the because he like gets buck. Yeah. And then he's like, it's okay, guys. Like, here I am. I have no weapons. Oh, you're one of us. <laughs> That's how we greet one another. Yeah. Even, even up in cold Canada. Man, I hope nobody actually decides that that's how they should be greeting indigenous people. Like, please, for the love of God, don't do that. 
And then he does the double howl, not just to put the one hand up and says howl. He puts both hands up and yeah. yeah. Um, another issue that I don't like about Chakotay, which I don't know if it was specifically that episode, but it's been in, in several, was uh, the, the spirit vision device, the bringing mm-hmm. the technology. And I, I had to look it up and it has a name. It's called the Akuna. Mm-hmm. Which, which, uh, I didn't, I didn't like when I first, uh, saw it. And then I looked into it. And, um, apparently it, it, uh, Jerry, I don't know if it was Jerry Taylor's original idea, but she liked the idea that it was controversial. And there's a, a quote from her that says, uh, we are positing that maybe native, uh, a quote, uh, American Indians in the 24th century have a technology that allows them to tap into their subconscious in a safe way. So they no longer have to take drugs fast or oh go into God. a sweat lodge. <laughs> that right there implies that the, the <sighs> traditions and, and rituals and ceremonies are, quote, not safe because yeah. now you need a, a technology. And so that was just the whole thing about um, his spirit device. You know, it just yeah. I didn't like that. Well, it, it also suggests that ceremony isn't technology. Yeah. Right? Um, right. You know, we've we've talked about in our podcast before, like indigenous people, we can never we can never be modern. We can never access technology. But we're also not really magical, right? Like, we don't have magical powers. We're not wizards, right? But we have this sort of, like, third other area. third yeah. thing of, like, some kind of, like, in- indigenous power that we can use, right? But it's it's never technology. Yeah. No, right? it's, it's never because we, we have yeah. an intellectual and technological tradition that has enhanced our life and that we use to, like, survive and thrive. It's always this other Mystical spiritual, nature powers. unknowable thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's always going to be dangerous. Right? That only indigenous that people savagery have. thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but white people can get it, and they can get it, you know, even better. Well, and, and the idea that it needs to be a technological electronic device. I mean, mm-hmm. so referencing quote unquote drugs and yeah. sweat lodges, but the the drugs part. I mean, obviously, uh, to me, is a reference to peyote and other mm-hmm. things. But to me. Well, that's not a, a mechanical device or an electronic device, but to learn that over time, you know, from the, the eons, decades, whatever you want to call it, it would involve chemistry, biochemistry, horticulture. Mm-hmm. So there would be some cor- kind of science behind it, just not a, a physical me- mechanical device or electronics. But, you know, you don't just stumble upon a mushroom and then go, hey, this is I'm going to build a culture around this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or like, hey, I'm just going to eat this and see what happens, yeah. you know. That's, I think that's kind of like that idea, right? That, you know, we're basically at that level. We're just kind of wandering around, like bumping into each other, grunting, accidentally you know. finding out stuff. Yeah. We don't, we don't science. We just, we just intuit. Right. <laughs> Where do you think modern medicine came from? Yeah, no, exactly. You know, people don't stop to think about the fact that it all started with the plants and the people who knew the plants who were the indigenous people. And they, they don't make those connections. And it's just like, oh, well, we can take we can take this stuff that's from the willow bark and we can condense it down and can still it and put all this other stuff in it and make this super pill. Yeah. You know, and it's like, or, or even that like a couple centuries ago, Europeans were afraid to bathe because they thought water had diseases. Yeah. So they literally were just rolling around in their own crap nonstop <laughs> for their entire lives. You know, like what is so superior about these people? <laughs> but we're the My dirty God. ones. Yeah. Like, you know. It's absurd. Yes. But we're never allowed to have that technology. We're never allowed to be advanced in any area. If we are, it's, it's an accident. Or it's aliens. Mm-hmm. Or it's aliens. Yeah. Yes. They gave it to us. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just wanted to um, just quickly interject with a couple of facts. So one thing is um, about Robert Beltran's ancestry, because I've had some questions about this in the past. And um, apparently he's 
of Mexican Native American ancestor and ancestry. So I believe that he has indigenous ancestry at like his grandparents level. Um, and he describes his own heritage as Latindio. So that's just okay. what he says about it. But another fact about Voyager is that when they decided to create the character of Chakotay, they hired a First Nations consultant who turned out to be totally bogus. Oh, yeah. oh, no, way. oh no way. So in like some ways, they actually kind of yep. did something kind of like what they should have done. Like, wow. hey, let's get someone who knows his shit and is indigenous and it turned out like he wasn't and didn't know anything and that's, that's partly why we got like chakotay having a medicine wheel and a medicine bundle and the rubber tree people and like all this you know it's symptomatic of that same homogenization you were talking about that you know we're going to take these symbols and mash them together into one character but it also was partly because they were trusting someone who had no idea what he was talking oh about that's amazing i can't wait to rewatch voyager with this yeah, knowledge yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, i'm not sure if i'm saying his name right but it was like jamaica high water jamaica high water that guy oh, yeah no way yeah and it, it even that's what I was referencing with Journey's End because it even goes back to Journey's End that the initially I think it was Ronald D Moore or one of the the main writers wanted it to be Hopi Kachina dolls you know everything authentic, but then he steps in and starts changing mm-hmm. it and that was a thing where it carried into Voyager and so that every time they wanted to do something like positive or progressive or do something right, it was shot down and they they were basically wanting to do what write so much that they were beholden to what he says and he would just make things up and uh, homogenize and do this like pan indian uh, blender thing where it's like a little bit of this a little bit of that and that was a thing that i didn't like about chakotay because early i love tos tng ds9 and i hear voyagers coming out with a native character i was like super pumped about it then what i see is the homogenization mm-hmm. like just throw things in a blender mm-hmm. And it made me think back to Sulu was Japanese. He wasn't some pseudo-Asian oriental hybrid thing. Scotty was Scottish, Uhura, every, all down the line. And then even in the next generation, Keiko O'Brien has a wedding and she's in traditional Japanese attire. So it's like there, there is specific culture and nation and heritage. But then what they do with Chakotay was just, it was just like a disgrace to me. And, it, it kind of turned me off of Voyager for mm-hmm. a while, but then I stuck with it because it's Star Trek and I knew that they were intending to do right. All these years later, when I find out it was that consultant, that just kind of, you know, made it that much more worse, but then kind of gave me a little forgiveness for the writers and the actors because they were just following what this uh, charlatan basically was telling wow. them. Wow. Wow. And that's, and that's actually really interesting as well because, you know, Voyager was what a decade at least after after TNG and yeah in a lot of ways you know the next generation deals with indigenous people and portrays indigenous people much more respectfully than Voyager does right i think with with uh science fiction portrayals of indigenous people you can't really count on you know time Having made things, things better, better yeah. or more respectful. Like, Some of the worst really things that we've seen varies. Are, are very recent. Yeah. Like worse than anything from like even the 50s and 60s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder, part of me is wondering if, if maybe that's why, right? Like, they're they're just talking to the wrong people. Yeah, they, they get these fake consultants. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh my gosh, probably. There's probably, well, I mean, it's there's probably a whole bunch of them, right? Just Yeah, wow. like a whole industry of, like, yeah. fake native consultants yeah. for TV. Oh, wow. <laughs> wow. Well, when they hire um, indigenous consultants for uh, particularly, like, children's books, because that's what I've been focusing on here lately, um, is the st- Indian stereotypes in children's books. And... Um, they will hire an indigenous consultant and then they won't pay any attention to what that person says. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. It's just, it's the box. They just check yeah. the box and yeah. then they move on. It's like, yeah. thanks, but that that's not working with the story I'm trying for. Yeah. Well, and that's what makes it even kind of like more sad is that when it comes to Voyager, they wanted to follow what the consultants were saying. They just had a bad consultant and, and where, where, with every misstep, you know, there is, I kind of look at what was the intention behind it? What were they, what was there an agenda? And obviously there's, you know, long history of agendas when it comes to indigenous representation in television and film. But with Star Trek, I've noticed that they, they'll, they'll make mistakes, they'll do things wrong, but they at least are trying to make the effort. And I kind of wonder to myself at times, like I don't even know the answer yes or no to myself, but I wonder sometimes is misrepresentation better than no representation at all? Because you have the paradise syndrome where they were, you know, doing quote unquote the best they can at the time, maybe. But then in the motion picture, I was really happy to see that when, when they, when Kirk pulls everybody into the cargo bay or wherever the big meeting room was, when they, they show them the V'ger cloud and they pan the crowd or the, the crew, there's native indigenous people in the crowd in uniform, but they're also still wearing regalia. And it was, you know, they didn't, they didn't speak. They weren't characters, but they were there. And I thought that's, it's nice. It was to me, I I connected to that, like saying, look, we're there. We're in the future. We're on the enterprise. And then another thing where they kind of make an attempt, but kind of also get it wrong or, you know, not as good as it could be was in, um, generations when Soren is wanting to destroy the star and Picard and Data are in that uh, stellar cartography they're talking about what planets are going to be destroyed if he blows up the star and there's one that has a population that is similar to a Native American some estimates of Native American uh, indigenous people of North America both North and South and then right as they're saying that 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 planet is going to be destroyed if you watch the star field it's moving around there's kind of like a, a connect the dots picture of an Indian head that goes over either Data or Picard's shoulder, and it kind of just zooms in and moves out of the frame. But it's the stereotypical, you know, profile with a, mm-hmm. a feather pointing up. So like they're trying to make the attempt to say, "Hey, look, we don't we want to protect this indigenous pre-industrial population," is what they call it. And then there's that the iconic or you know stereotypical Indian head. So. Uh, do they get points for that or do they get deducted for that because they're trying to, but it just goes wrong. And that's the thing where Star Trek at least tries to make the attempt and sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not so good. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's a, that's actually a really good point, right? Cause I think as much as we love to, to tear this stuff up, right? Like we all, first we love Trek, right? But also, you know, part of what colonialism continues to attempt to do is to eradicate us, right? To disappear us. Um, I've legitimately had people tell me that I couldn't be indigenous because there are no Indians left. Right. And so it's, it's that kind of thing that makes representation, even if it is super stereotypical, super ridiculous, and even like, you know, downright offensive and sometimes harmful, 
you know, I do think it's important that, you know, as you said, like, at least they're trying and they continue to try, right? But, you know, at some point, it's also like, it's, you know, it's 2017 now. Yeah. You know, like, you who, can talk to who us. Who are you getting? Who are We're you on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Don't, don't just call fake native consultants yeah. or us and, and just grab somebody out of that pool, right? Like, go and talk to communities, figure out what it is that you're actually writing about and who you want to, to portray and whose stories you want to tell, right? Because, we're out there. And also like indigenous people are, are making sci-fi yeah. and we're making more and more of it because we're nerds. So like, you know, there's, there's all these, there's all sorts of options for folks now. There was indigenous consultants and indigenous actors in Hollywood in all these time frames that, that they could have gone to mm -hmm. and talked to. And they didn't choose to do that. And, and then of course there are the indigenous actors that don't look Indian, so they never mm -hmm. had Indian roles. Um, James Garner instantly comes to mind. He's Cherokee. Hit the name of his production company, Cherokee Productions. And, and he was very proud of the fact that he was Cherokee, but he didn't have the quote classic Indian look, so he never got an Indian role. But. Yeah, and so they're, they're hiring all these Italians instead. Yeah. Oh, yes. <laughs> Well, it, it brings to mind, especially, you know, calling back to the Paradise Syndrome episode, um, I really want to get your book because I'm always fascinated with, you know, TV and movie, uh, cinema history in general, but obviously when it connects to cultures and then obviously, you know, close to home, the indigenous cultures. But there's a really good documentary that I've seen, and it's on Netflix now, it, you know, February as we're recording this, it, but I've seen it come and go off of Netflix, but it's called Real Engine. It's R R E E L like or film film reel and it's I N J U N engine, and it talks about how the depiction of indigenous people has shifted over the decades from the silent era to the 60s 70s you know all the way up to you know and what tropes have shifted what's the predominant trope and the only and it's interesting because that that documentary was made in 2009. And Voyager had its complete run before that. It went from like, mm -hmm. uh, it ended in like 2001. The only uh, image that they use in that documentary is a, the picture of Kirk Kirk, <laughs> Kirk you know, extending yeah. his arms now that he's found the blissful peace mm -hmm. that now he's a god, you know, among these uh, wearing, child Wearing the medicine badge. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it focuses more on the westerns and, and yeah. you know, other movies. But yeah, it doesn't look at sci-fi so much. Yeah. That was, that's what I felt was missing, specifically when I watched it. There was that one little brief shot of uh, Kirk in that episode, but then I thought, well, where's Chakotay? They could have said it was good or bad. You know, they just didn't. They passed it over. But it does kind of bring bring uh, back to like you know the white savior, the uh, the teacher of the children, like almost like a parent role to the child, where the co co colonialism, uh, government people are like the teacher. Uh, parent over the childlike you know the native indian uh, indigenous population but then also you know as the enemy then like the dances with wolves where they want to find peace and happiness in that culture but oh wait they still have to teach them how to fight how to do <laughs> irrigation and, and all that i would be remiss if i didn't just briefly mention uh the animated series i don't know how oh, yeah. you have watched it. It. Um, it but uh there is a character Ensign Dawson Walking Bear, who is, uh, I mean, everyone on that show is basically voiced by the same people. So he's voiced by James Doohan. But I would say I would maybe add that to the list of, you know, attempts that were not quite on the money, but probably helped more than hurt. Um, just, 
he's basically just a Starfleet officer who's a scholar of many peoples in Earth history and is a helmsman and has kind of a, a small role in a couple episodes. See, and I, I actually love that too, right? Because I think that you know, there needs to be just more native people around just doing stuff. Yeah, and not, not being right. super native, like yeah. Ray Green in, in Die Hard, you know? Yeah. Where he's, he's just, he's just a cop. cop. Yeah. He's, he's just, not like you know, the Indian cop. Yeah. He's, he's not like, you know, they don't, they don't need to do a big exposition yeah, on, yeah. you know, how native he is. He's just there. Yeah. Right. Like, why can't we just be, be there, there sometimes, mm. you know, without having to be these, these token characters so they can check off these boxes, right? Just yeah. like, yeah, have, have a, you know, native helmsman who just like comes to work every day, does the eight hours on the bridge and then like F's off to like, you know, go play bingo or yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. go like run on the treadmill or whatever. You know, right? <laughs> like we, I think we do need a lot more of that too. Cause we are just around yeah. and you know, as you mentioned, right? Like we look all sorts of ways, right? There's black natives, white natives, um, you know, Asian natives, like everybody, right? Like show, show the whole range and show, you know, not, don't just show the Cherokee. Don't just show the Hopi, you know, anybody else. Like, you know, there's a whole range of us from everywhere all the time with like science and maths and gym and, you know, everything, all the subjects, all of the things. It would be great if, if, uh, when they, they, uh, get discovery off the ground that, that they would have maybe a season arc that would involve having an indigenous crew member and who really does end up debunking the stereotypes that Hollywood has created. Um, that, that yes, this indigenous crew member would rely on their, uh, his or her past experiences, um, his or her people's experiences, traditions, stories to inform them and guide them as a crew member. But at the same time, that they would draw their strength from original instructions and traditional knowledge, but it would be an integral part of their everyday life, not some mm-hmm. kind of hokey uh, occasional ceremonies or pseudo-mystic plot devices like Shakote and his medicine bundle and his personal medicine wheel. It, it yeah. could be done very respectfully that, that this is just one of the regular crew who happens to be indigenous and uses that as a personal strength and, and instead of the some kind of mystic spiritual sort of way that when they're in trouble they have to rely on on the the indian sidekick to come to their rescue yeah, yeah or maybe even you know one of the things that i liked about chakotay and they don't and you know chelsea mentions like young chakotay is a total turd <laughs> but you know and they don't they don't really play into this very much more except in the the angst way is like he's not necessarily super connected to his culture right Mm -hmm. like he came to it pretty late he knows like specific like types of ceremony and like some stories and some tradition but he's not really all that connected and he's internalized some like ideas like some negative ideas about it as well Mm -hmm. like he's not he's also not super positive about it right he's he's got like these sort of contradictions and shames and yeah which is feelings of inferiority Yeah. yeah and so yeah also having you know having you know, characters who, you know, are really embedded in their, their culture and their tradition and their language and, and use that on the daily and it's not a big deal. But then also having characters who were you know, trying to negotiate or, those yeah. things or, yeah, or yeah. who, yeah, exactly, were adopted by non-native families or who, you know, were disconnected for whatever reason and are, are trying to find their way back and doing that in respectful ways as well. Mm-hmm. And just showing that there are all sorts of different ways of being Indigenous. Mm-hmm. That would be great. Mm-hmm. 
Um, when you mentioned the character um, from the animated series, Ensign Walking Bear, I, I, it sparked a memory, and I had to look it up real quick. In the DC Comics Star Trek comic book series, there was a native character called Ensign William Bearclaw, and it says uh, he was noted for being prejudiced and antagonistic. So, you know, kind of an a-hole. But then it says, unusual traits for a fictional Indian. But then, so what it, if it's... a that makes me think, are they supposed to be peaceful and agreeable and docile all the yeah, time? Yeah, Sidekick. Yeah. yeah. I wonder if he's, maybe he's a bit like Ensign Rowe, right? Like, maybe he's antagonistic towards the white people. Mm. Yeah, it, um, so he's a, he's a big character in one of my favorite, most ridiculous Star Trek comics called Star Trek Bachelor Party. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. That sounds incredible. Uh, it is incredible. I have written a whole article on it on Trekkie Feminist if anyone wants to go Google it. Um, but right um, Bearclaw says that like he doesn't drink because the white men screwed over his ancestors with alcohol. And um, basically what happens in this comic is that Kirk says, sure, you can have a big bachelor party for this crewman, but you can't drink. And Scotty and McCoy are like, no way. So they independently both spike the punch. And so the punch <laughs> is basically all alcohol and everyone gets super oh drunk. God. And then Bearclaw starts being just super racist against everyone who's not him. So um, it's weird it's wow. there's i think sulu does too like there's it's this whole thing that if you get drunk you get racist <laughs> and then they get in a big brawl and someone hits kirk on the head with a bottle and then kirk lectures them all and that's pretty much the end <laughs> that sounds awesome <laughs> that sounds so good <laughs> <laughs> oh my god yeah so i mean back to uh discovery uh the, so we've seen a lot of casting announcements. We haven't seen an indigenous actor cast. Um, we've seen a fair amount of people, of racialized people, um, and a couple key women of color. But, um, the more casts I see, like the less optimistic I am about it. But, you know, maybe they're holding something awesome back. And, uh, what would you, want to see can we maybe talk a little bit more about what you would want to see out of uh, star trek discovery how about like an inuit actor for once yeah, <laughs> like or two spirit yeah or two spirit you know or an inuit two spirit like <laughs> yeah yeah because there's some amazing uh there's some amazing work being done by by inuit directors and actors and communities um some of the most amazing authentic indigenous movies coming out right now are, are inuit made Right. So just have somebody like, just go get somebody <laughs> there. You know? Yeah. That would be amazing. That would be super. Cause those folks, like they get left out of everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And even when I think even in general discussions about indigenous people and, you know, modernity or the mainstream, you know, those, they're just yeah, constantly about marginalized the and they're like badass. They're super they're badass. So much incredible stuff. And yeah. like the sci-fi community needs them. Oh yeah. And, and man, like, oh Inuit people could be so sci-fi. Like, it, it would not be difficult to sort of extrapolate, like, how Inuit people are living right now, you know, into future centuries. Like, oh, be so good. So good. As long as aliens haven't taken us to another planet and dumped us there and we haven't progressed for centuries. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, 
Yes, that's the other thing about the Paradise Syndrome is like literally that was supposed to be like 3,000 years and people still haven't figured out how to preserve food. And oh even as David pointed out, and uh, it says in your book, Sierra, as well, that like clearly people did know how to. Like, where do you yeah. think jerky came oh, from? Yeah. yeah. And, and, and if you can't preserve food, then how do you survive as people? <laughs> yeah, exactly. One of, the, one of the things I'd like to see, you know, in terms of an indigenous character is a lot of times the, the stereotype and the tropes come down to the brave, the Indian brave mm-hmm. and the warrior or the shaman. And it's, it's a lot of, even to Chicote, it's a lot about the mm-hmm. men. Yeah. And one of the things that always like was a, a, a spark for me that like I always thought was, you know, important and, and just cool was a uh, sashing little feather t- accepting talking at the at the oscars you know instead of marlon brando so i would love to see uh, a strong but you know multifaceted uh, indigenous Mm. woman on uh, Mm -hmm, on in mm -hmm. star trek yeah because that's something we've seen in in so many shows is you know when they do there's sort of like a a very limited range of, of characters available for indigenous men but the range for women is even less like you know even if the story revolves entirely around an indigenous woman sometimes you won't even have a speaking role like you know it's the indian princess or or the temptress or whatever but she's not supposed to do anything she doesn't have any agency she's just there as an object of either desire or revenge or, you know, something, but that's it. Yeah. Or, or the wise grand, the wise grandmother. Right. Yeah. 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 I would also love to see a more, and I think DS9 did this really well sometimes, but I would like to see more of an anti-colonial analysis of the Federation. Oh God. Yes. Because the Federation is messed right up and actually like doing close readings of star trek and tmg especially really like starts to uncover the ways that the federation is ultimately like hyper exploitative Mm -hmm. like it's like a hyper exploitative conquest organization essentially right it's like the the one of the big imperial powers of the galaxy um but you know tmg and like picard is just you know he's right in there but it would be great to see and like especially indigenous characters start you know questioning the federation and starfleet and the idea of a global government and what that means from an anti-colonial standpoint i would love to see that yeah i actually thought that we were maybe going to get that in star trek beyond when i saw those first previews and they had sort of that line the frontier pushes back and i was like wow we're gonna see people who are like hey you guys have taken it too far and you're not actually that superior um and then that wasn't what it was about at all i still love it but (laughs) Well, in, in terms of the Federation, I've, you know, whether it relates to the Klingons or Romulans or other, uh, other global, uh, governments or superpowers, whatever. But I've also just in terms of the Federation itself, like how are they depicted? How do they represent what their goals are? A lot of times I've, I've seen it. It's kind of especially more the, the original series, but that the, the prime directive and the goals of the Federation kind of are takeoffs of manifest destiny. Oh, where, yeah, where, totally. where Kirk is like bringing civilization to the savages or, you know, saying, join us or, you know, well, sorry, we can't help you. But like, and I, that's why in back to DS9, I really love that scene between Quark and Garrick where they're saying the Federation is insidious. You mm-hmm. know, it, they, they move in and they take things over, but you kind of like, you know, they, they have, they have good tools or whatever. It's like, yeah, that the Federation isn't always so great. And we always hear a lot about, how Star Trek was originally conceived of or pitched as wagon train to the stars. 
And mm-hmm. I've heard I've heard some people say, well, does that mean outer space is then is that Indian territory if they're uh, venturing out to a uh, you know take over and that kind of plays into the manifest destiny westward expansion all that like you know it's out there we need to just you know move in take it over from the federation perspective yeah well and i've all, I've, I've often wondered too if that's why they don't focus so much on indigenous representations because the the assumption is is that all the peoples that they encounter are sort of supposed to represent indigenous peoples you know different aspects of it but i think that falls flat too you know like they are, it, it is still very much cowboys and Indians, but, you know, science fiction always does this, right? It always takes sort of like the, the, the real, uh, real life anxieties of the time and, and, and tries to, to, tries to pick at it and talk about it, right? So when you look at sci-fi in different ages, you can sort of see what the anxiety was at the time. But no, like, it's not that all the people that they encounter are supposed to be indigenous. It's, you know, they're, they're supposed to represent many things, right? Like communism or fascism or, you know, um, racial diversity, all of that, right? And and so again, we get subsumed into this micro minority. And I think that's probably why we're not going to see a character, like a new character. It's just, they're trying this idea that the way that they come at diversity is sort of a numbers game, right? And we're seen as so, such a tiny, tiny population that representation of us is not that important when it comes to, you know, like who, who else that they could put in there. And uh, that invisibilization is, is really problematic because it means like even if we do get a character, it's probably going to be a really bit role because they're they're more interested in making sure that everybody else is represented, you know. Mm-hmm. Or even Chakotay, right? Like mm-hmm. he's like, you know, he's supposed to be this big maquis commander who has tons of experience and is a bit of a military genius. But then his actual character is like kind of a beta male, mm-hmm. um, which I actually kind of honestly I like that about him. I like that he's just like I love you, Janeway. I love you. Yeah. I'm here for you. I'm yeah. gonna support you. I'm just with you. I don't yeah, even yeah. care. I love that about him. But you know, it's also like that's that's all he gets because as particular as an indigenous man, he's always seen as you know that violence. Um, is very much embodied in an indigenous man, right? He's he's always on the edge of violence, so they have to make him super, super passive in Voyager in order to to you know try to offset that anxiety. Um, and so you know that's a major problem when it comes to representation, right? Like how do you how do non natives approach creating a fully human indigenous character mm. who doesn't have to be super passive, who doesn't have to be strictly a supporting role, who can have you know all sorts of different problems and story arcs and stuff like, you know, Worf is one of my all time favorite characters um, because of that. Like as a person, he's like not actually a great guy. He's not a great dad. Um, he's like hyper conservative. You know, you think about yes. you know, the episode, for example, where he gets paralyzed and is trying to get everybody to kill him. Right. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's like super, you know, super messed up in a lot of ways. And he's, you know, people are constantly trying to control him and regulate him. Um, because of that, you know, perceived uncontrollability of Klingons. And then, like, it's, it's almost the opposite when they have an indigenous character, right? Because there's that real fear that, like, real indigenous people are going to be violent and uncontrollable. They allowed the violence to come through, and particularly like the Klingons. Um, and mm-hmm. look at Kayla, who was the, uh, half Klingon, half Earth person, and, and, yeah. you know, she shatters the glass table because she's, she is, got these vying and conflicting emotions going on with her in all of the time frame or um, with Bolana, um, who, you know, the, the episode yes. where she, she's trying to, to pick out all of the, the Klingon DNA from her child that she's going to have oh. with Paris. Uh, just, but they were allowed to have their violent times mm-hmm. because they, it was part of their nature. 
but you can't do that with Chicote. He he can't represent that because it's going to be too overwhelming. Or the, the, the instance with um, it, him ending up with Seven, who is the unemotional, <laughs> damaged white woman, blonde. My gosh, mm. talk about the stereotypes that, the, that that's the only person he could end up with because it would be too much of a threat for him to be with anybody normal. Yeah. yeah. No. Mm-hmm. Well, also everyone else was taken except for yeah. Janeway. <laughs> yeah. It was like, oh crap, we have to make everyone heterosexual at the end of the show. <laughs> exactly. yeah. And yeah, we can't, we can't put Janeway and Seven together, which we've obviously been building to yeah. for seasons and seasons oh at this God. point. Like, right? Yeah, like, and there are no gays in space, so we can't make like Chakotay Kim a thing. Yeah. Oh my God, Chakotay Kim would be Ooh. such an awesome thing. <laughs> well, and, and in referencing the Klingons, a lot of times, and I'm a big Klingon fan. I, I've learned the le- the language. I've played with the language for a long time. I do the That's makeup and, and costuming, so I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. But then a lot of people ask me about Klingon things, and I've heard, you know, the jokes or the c- comparisons, like, "Oh, Klingons are the space orcs or they're space pirates." But as much as I, I, there's things that I like about the Klingons, and I think they're, you know, represented well and well written and fleshed out. There have been the times where I've kind of thought, aside from the space orcs or pirates, there is the times where I kind of think the Klingons are kind of, in a way, the space Indians, because Mm -hmm. there's always that underlying violence that they're, you know, you got to watch out around them. They, you know, the knife, the the stereotype of, instead of the, if it's either the bow and arrow or a knife, that's the stereotype. And so, you know, Klingons are all about the blades and then, you know, obviously the long hair and some of the, you know, depictions of it. And so, Again, bringing it back to Worf, there's some like, you know, legitimacy to it, some, some reality behind it, but there's also that trope of being caught between two worlds. He's not fully Mm -hmm. Indian and he's not the the half breed. Like he's not fully Indian. He's not fully white. Yeah. He's raised by humans, aka white people. Like, yeah. Yeah. Walks in two worlds. Exactly. (laughs) That's like, that's another uh, native stereotype or trope that I was, you know, saw applied to Worf. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, how do you have, you know, uh, indigenous or, you know, indigenous connected character who's not just super angsty about their identity? Can we just have that? Yeah. Can we just have one of those one time, please? That would be nice. <laughs> well, in, in thinking of the tropes, the, just like the, the catchphrases of it, you have like the savage and that applies to the Klingons, but then there's the, the, the twisting of it where it's like the noble savage. They yeah. kind of have played into that too with the Klingons. Yeah. Totally. One thing that I like about Star Trek and particularly in the next generation is the, the juxtaposition between the Borg and the Federation. And what are mm-hmm. the Borg? The Borg or the assimilation? You know, everybody's going to be assimilated and resistance is futile. And does anybody catch the irony of the Federation going against that when the Federation is this colonizing thing? And yeah, it does the same <laughs> I, thing. Exactly. I love it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful. And I, it's, it's, it's so interesting because what I've, like, when I started talking to people about that initially, everybody was like, no, 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 they're not colonizers, they're communists. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, what, say what? <laughs> yeah. Cause they're communal, right? Yeah. yeah it's like that, like, that whole red scare thing. I yeah. was like, uh, we've had the white scare and this looks a lot more like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, and then with the Federation and the Borg, at times I kind of saw it as the, the flip side of the same coin or like the, the mirror opposites because you have the idea of, in American history, the whole melting pot. And mm-hmm. the Federation is sometimes 
depicted as, hey, look, we're the melting pot. We got all these different aliens coming together in the Federation. And then you have the Borg that say they want all of, you know, technology and culture will be adapted to service us. But then your culture is like stripped away from you. Mm -hmm. So they become a, a homogenous, like one type of uh, monoculture. And so it's kind of like the Federation is, you know, kind of doing the same thing, but they're using the whole melting pot. And individualism. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that's, that's the big difference is like, okay, yeah, sure. We subsume all these cultures and make everybody, you know, the same as us. And we all have the same like goals, but, but we're still individuals. And also that illusion of choice, yeah. right? The Federation is all about this illusion of choice, even though they are this large imperial power and, you know, these individual planets and systems are kind of often like caught between, you know, do you want to be part of, you know, the Cardassian empire, the Klingon empire, the Ferengi consortium or the Federation. Right. And so there's always that kind of implicit threat of, you know, the Federation has like advanced technology, um, but they're, you know, at least nominally kind of like the peaceful liberal mm -hmm. alternative to these other scarier options. Yeah. 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 Benevolent. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Totally. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, if there's people listening who, you know, haven't really thought about this before, like you just go back and watch some of the episodes where Kirk goes and lectures a planet or Picard goes and lectures a planet and they say, you're not good enough to be in the Federation. Yeah. Oh, I love it. It's, it makes everything so clear. Or even just the ones with the prime directive, right? Where yeah. it's like, you know, the prime directive only applies if, if a society hasn't, um, achieved work. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, that's, that's completely arbitrary. Yeah. yeah. Right. Like, what does that mean? Yeah, no toaster sure. strudels? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, talk's a good game, but <laughs> maybe mm -hmm. we don't always see it represented. But, um, another thing I wanted to just ask, um, is I want to talk a little bit about fandom and, particularly cosplay of First Nations characters mm -hmm. and how, like, I've been at conventions and I've seen white people cosplaying Chakotay as well as the characters from the Paradise Syndrome. Just wondering what your thoughts would be on that or, like, what you would tell someone who was thinking about that. That's interesting. I feel like, for me, Chakotay and, like, Miramani are two wildly, wildly different things, mm -hmm. you know? Like, Nobody should ever cosplay anything from Paradise Syndrome because it's a trash episode. Like, let's be honest, in a lot of ways. <laughs> but also, like, it's clearly red face. You know, yeah. the, the way that those Indigenous people are portrayed, uh, they're not played by Indigenous actors. It's hyper, you know, as folks have been saying, homogenized, pan-Indian, stereotypical, like the fringe, the buckskin. With Chakotay, you know, if you want to dress up and, you know, have Chakotay's tattoo and be wearing, you know, the uniform... I personally don't see anything wrong with that. He's a he's a character. He's reoccurring. He's one of the main bridge officers. That to me is kind of fair game, right? I think it's different if you're dressing up. You know, if he were to be wearing regalia or something, I think that would be different. Yeah, if but... you threw if you threw him into into buckskin, you know, no, yeah, just don't do it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, well, I agree with Debbie Reese when she talked about being disrespectful for whites to play Indians. Whites don't dress up and play other ethnic groups. Um, she used, uh, in particular, they don't dress up like Jews for Halloween and they don't dress up like Catholics for Halloween. Or, or the argument that they use, oh, well, we're honoring indigenous peoples by having one for our mascot or, you know, dressing up like them at, at a Star Trek convention. And the reality is it's just a justification that if you really want to honor indigenous peoples, do it by actually including real indigenous peoples and listening to them and respecting them and their values. Yeah, the whole playing Indian is a is a trope that's been in Hollywood for a long time, and that's you know plays right into Kirok uh, or Kirk with the Paradise Syndrome and then Wesley and all that. About the cosplay, um, 
I kind of agree about Chakotay that um, it's basically just, you know putting the tattoo, which can be you know uh, indigenous or like the uh, Pacific Island you know tr- uh, people that would do tattooing. People cosplay as uh, like Jordy. I've seen different uh, people of eth- different ethnicities uh, do the the visor with the Jordy uniform, and I'm not really uh, opposed to that. But I did see at, a, at one of the conventions we went to. There was an entire group that uh, basically did the Paradise Syndrome as a group cosplay. And so you had, you know, the Kirok, and then I think pretty much everybody else were were uh, women, were female. So you basically had a harem of Miramani uh, clones. Yeah, and, and it was the, the same, you know, uh, fabricated, you know, fringe and, you know, uh, triangle pattern headbands, uh, elastic headbands and whatever. And to me, I thought, you know, I know, and I know the people, at least some of the people in that group, and I know they didn't mean it to be negative or insulting or, you know, anything against, um, they probably thought it was a cool episode or, you know, they're, they're like, you, they're honoring the native. To me, I, I cringed internally, but then I also, there, there's a, again, it, that side of me that goes, well, what was their intent or, you know, the, the meaning behind it? And I don't think it was meant to be, you know, mocking or insulting. So to me, I like, I cringed and I didn't like it, but I thought, okay, so maybe that's one of their favorite episodes because they just buy into the tropes and, and the, the stereotypes and the romanticism of, you know, Hollywood. And, and to me, I, I would recommend, you know, to against it. Well, on one hand, it was a definitely a standout episode. And, and with, with Star Trek cosplay, I've seen the gangsters from the, the trickster, uh, episode. I've seen pretty much any episode that is standout that's not just your basic uniforms people have cosplayed. So that could have been the other thing. Like, hey, here's a, what, what standout episode have we not done yet? But uh, sure. But I mean, like, gangsters are, it's, it's a profession. Yeah. You know, I think, I think you're stereotyping, like, you're dressing up as a people. Yeah. If you're dressing in red face, right? Is that, um, intent is, is also based on like what people think that they know about us, which is based on like all of these stereotypes, right? So we go back to that, that main issue of is it better to have no representation at all or is it better to have bad rep- representation? And then out of bad representation comes these ideas of, of, of how we look and, and how we are. And, and people aren't, none of that is malicious, right? But then people take those things, internalize them and then express them. And so it's like, it's all part of this sort of wider issue of the fact that we, that they don't know who we are. They, they just make us up, right? So it's not that we would need to be like, you know, get, get all up in their faces about it. But I, I do think that now, because we are available on, you know, it, it, we have access to social media, we're more uh, accessible maybe than we were before when people are asking and we say no, that they should just be like, okay. I got my answer instead of like, there's all these justifications about honoring us and, you know, and I didn't mean it and da da da. Just like when we say no, just don't I do think it. the paradise syndrome resonates so well, even today with people um, is because it w- represented exploring vicariously through Kirk slash Karak, um, getting more in touch with uh, a more natural lifestyle, one that's less technologically dependent, um, a slower less stressful pace 
Um, when the, the episode aired in the 60s, America was embroiled in the Vietnam War. There was all the strife over civil rights. There was the feminist movement, the Cold War, the very real terrors of scientific advancement through nuclear bombs and things like that. It was really, uh, if you will, a machine in the garden syndrome where people physically and mentally had lost touch with the soil due to the invention of the tractor. It's, it really is that way in the Paradise Syndrome because as we become a more technologically advanced society, we are yearning for something a little cleaner and more simple and less stressful. And I think that is the embodiment that's in the Paradise Syndrome and why people actually really enjoy that episode because it gives them that little taste of being able to that it's okay to step away from technology. Yeah, get back to nature. Yes. And, you know, in that episode, they mentioned the Tahiti syndrome, mm-hmm. but Kirk is like, there's no command decisions, there's no pressure, mm-hmm. and it's just, just his his quote, I think, was just living. Yes. So it's like, yeah. I th- and I think that's what, why that's such an important episode. And, and yes, I, I, it's, you should forgive people for wanting to, be part of that, uh, even though it's got all of the bad things. And they, they probably really don't know that. And uh, I agree with what's been said about that. Um, it's, it isn't malicious intent. But I think, you know, I think at the same time, it's, you know, ultimately it's, it's about, you know, is, is you wanting to tap into that, like justification enough for, dressing up as like a hyper stereotype of a race because i think the difference between chakotay and dressing up as chakotay or say dressing up as geordie with just the visor or just the tattoo and dressing up as say miramani is that you know geordie and chakotay the visor isn't what geordie's race is right like you're not pretending to be an entirely different people and with all of that baggage and what that stereotype is and the same thing with chakotay right you slap on a chakotay tattoo and you're not you're not really playing Indian, you're playing Chakotay mm-hmm. because he is, he is one character and, and you have, you know, he's seven seasons, you have the chance to learn about him, you know, and you're not, you know, I think if you dressed up as Chakotay doing one of his ceremonies, like to me, that would be unacceptable because you're tapping into like this idea of what a whole people is and the stereotype of what a whole people is. And so to me, that's kind of the difference between, you know, doing other types of cosplay and cosplaying as Miramani, for example, because she she is just a stereotype, ultimately. And even if you want to tap into that Tahiti syndrome thing and that getting away from it all thing, I don't think cosplaying as that character is, is the appropriate way to do it. You could do you the know? Baku. Absolutely. A whole bunch of white hippies. Yeah, totally. And they dress better, you know? <laughs> So yeah, I think I think the main thing is like when you're when you're thinking about, you know, wanting to cosplay as an indigenous character or an episode with an indigenous theme, just like think really hard about what that might mean for, you know, for example, David who's also there, who is he going to be cringing inside? Like if if a native person saw you at this Comic-Con, are they going to feel like they're being honored or are they going to feel like crappy about seeing you dressed mm-hmm. up in buckskin pretending to be them, right? A, a kind of an, an analogy I would make with it is you know, to, to give another example, similar, but flip it is, uh, the code of honor episode where Yar is, uh, you know, having to fight the very stereotypically racist, uh, you know, Simba African kind of turban wearing. So if, if you were to cosplay that, 
how would an African-American or an African person seeing that, how would they think about it? Yeah, totally. That's well, um, we should be wrapping up, but um, this has been a fantastic discussion. I'm going to go around and give you a chance for some final thoughts, and then we'll do some outros. That's all good. So um, let's go uh, reverse order from before. So David, any final thoughts you want to add? Yeah, um, again, there's been there's been missteps and mistakes, and it, it to me, is coming from a, a positive place more than a negative place, it, it could obviously be more informed. And sometimes I take the, you know, the, the stereotypes as a chance to inform and educate the people who are uh, misinformed and don't know what the real history is. And I just hope that we see more cultural representation in Star Trek. And then also just in, in science fiction. One thing I really loved about Star Trek, as opposed to Star Wars and, and other things, is it is Earth. It, it's projecting our future. So it has all of our history behind it. So I, as, as much as I want to see, you know, positive and, and informed indigenous representation, I loved seeing Keiko in her kimono, in her uh, cultural uh, attire for the wedding. I want to see more of that to bring it back to you know, we're not just, oh, we've evolved past culture and heritage and, and, and our history in the future to have, you know, more people connected to that. Um, so, you know, that's what the good thing about Star Trek is it is supposed to be us in the future. Fabulous. Uh, final thoughts from Chelsea? Um, so I, I'm still super hopeful about sci-fi. Like, I love it. It's my favorite genre. And, you know, um, Star Trek really, like, embodies a lot of the things that I that I love. It, the forward-thinking um, imagining us in, in the future and, and, and just sort of like dealing with these, these human problems that we're going to continue to have. Um, I think, I think though that I'm, I'm sort of, um, would I, my, my hopefulness is going more towards there being more inclusion of, uh, indigenous directors and actors, because some of the sci-fi that's coming out, um, you know, straight from indigenous traditions and peoples is really, really exciting. And I think that, uh, it'd be really awesome if Star Trek could tap into some of that. Like we've, we've seen some stuff, uh, you know, like looking at like the Navajo going to Mars and, and, and stuff like that, that I think would just be brilliant. It would just be so good. And, uh, we have really, really talented, creative people out there. So having them involved would be, would be for me ideal. That's, that's what I want to see. Awesome. Molly? Yeah, I think just much, much of the same as what's been said. Uh, Star Trek just is so incredible. And, you know, having the, the opportunity to, to watch it, um, and talk about it and analyze it and rewatch it and rewatch it again <laughs> and again and again. Uh, but uh, like from an indigenous perspective and from an anti-colonial lens, um, I think like just provides so much more, you know, depth and complexity to, to what Star Trek does and, and attempts to do and, and sometimes succeeds and sometimes fails. Uh, but yeah, going forward, I have to echo what, what folks have said, you know, like, you know, taking these opportunities to do uh, educational work, I think, is really important. And yeah, including, you know, representation, um, not just on the screen, but also behind the camera in the writing room, um, you know, through casting, through, you know, you know, all of those different things, like we're, we're everywhere, and we're there all the time. And I think everybody, you know, all of the Indian nerds out there would love to oh, hop yeah. on board with Star Trek. Yes. So I think, you know, that there's such a such a an opportunity there that I really hope that uh, Star Trek Beyond takes advantage of. Or Star Trek Discovery, I should say. Uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Sierra? I agree with what everybody else has been saying. Uh, Star Trek is, is the promise for the future. 
Um, and it is the promise of what we could be as uh, earthlings, as diverse peoples. That's part of um, a group that's not homogenous, but one that where they're taking their strength from their diversity and using diversity as a platform of which to become better as a cohesive group. I think that is the message that Star Trek has sometimes very well done and sometimes not so well done in in its very formats, but the, the, the potential is there. And if Star Trek fans are the ones that are going to be involved in the production of the new movies and of the the new series Discovery. I'm hoping that they will understand that it is important for Star Trek to include this diversity of this wonderful group of indigenous peoples that that can bring so many different perspectives and lens on the way of looking at things and going about things that I think that's really my hope for Star Trek for the future is that there will be this burst of inclusion so that we get all this lovely diversity that we have that most people don't really see because they, they're they so stuck in that well all Indians are all part of the same culture and the same traditions and the same cultures or maybe there's a couple of different ones there's the the eastern Indians the, the five civilized tribes and and the plains Indians and the the people down in the southwest but other than that there really isn't anything else and and the the fact that there's so much richness to draw on I'm just hopeful that that will occur all right. Well, thank you everyone so much again. I'm thrilled that we were able to have this discussion and hope that we can get you to guest on some other topics in the future. Usually what we do now is we go around and just say, you know, where people can find you and your work or your website or whatever, your Twitter, whatever else you'd like to plug at this point. Um, so I'll start with you, Sierra. Uh, where can people find you and your work? Well, my uh, book, India and um, Stereotypes in TV Science Fiction, is available through the University of Texas Press. Um, I'm currently working on a book that I have no idea who's going to publish it, but it's about the uh, the invisibility of um, Indians and ironically in um, Indian captivity narratives. <laughs> that, Ooh, yes. Sorry. Um, that sounds great. <laughs> well, um, the, the title of it uh, for now is um, Color Me Red, Communicating Indigenous Cultural Invisibility with Invisibility Being In and then Visibility um, in Children's Literature 1682 to 1824. Amazing. Um, and Molly. Uh, yeah. So uh, Chelsea and I, if you want to check out Métis in Space, um, it's a podcast. We're uh, actually part of the Indian and Cowboy Media Network, which is a podcasting platform specifically for Indigenous people. And so we're one of many uh, Indigenous-run podcasts out there. And I really recommend that folks check that out at IndianandCowboy.com um, if you're interested at all about, um, you know, anything that we're talking about and more, because they do incredible stuff over there. Uh, for Métis Space specifically, we are online at MétisInSpace.com. Uh, so you can check out our blog, our Agony Ant column, uh, and the podcast there. And we are on the iTunes, uh, if you search out Métis in Space. 
And we also do the Twitter, um, which I think is just at Métis Space, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Yeah. 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 So I think that's it. Anything else that I forget? For Métis Space? No. Okay. Great. That's it. Um, and also, uh, so I have, uh, I have a book called Indigenous Rights, uh, which is W-R-I-T-E-S. It's, uh, First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Issues in Canada. And it's sort of a, sort of a, a, a tool for people to debunk some of the myths that are out there about Indigenous peoples. And it's specific to Canada, so, uh, talks about some of the legislation here. Um, and you can also find me blogging and tweeting as Pitawi Gosasan. Uh, easiest way to find that, honestly, because I never expected anybody to read anything. So I, I chose a name that was not easy to spell. It's just Google Chelsea Vowel. Vowel, like A-E-I-O-U, and you'll find all my social media stuff and the book. Awesome. I'm totally going to have to check out your book. Um, David, where can people find you elsewhere on the interwebs? Well, uh, every Thursday at uh, 7 p.m. Pacific, 10 p.m. Eastern, you could find my show on trekradio.net. I do a show called The Warrior's Den, which is uh, pretty much themed around uh, the Klingon uh, lore, content, uh, language. But uh, I I talk about everything Star Trek, you know, Star Wars, Tron, all kinds of good uh geekery and nerd culture stuff but i also play a very wide diverse uh type of uh, selection of music including world music at times you know i play a lot of it you know jazz metal polka but i do uh share world music especially at you know native american uh tribal music from uh powwow music to uh you know some of the big names are carlos nakai john trudell joanne shannon Doe, like so many different ones that uh you know, I just enjoy a, a wide range of music, but I, I definitely want to include cultural and tribal music into that uh, mixture. And uh, you could find me on social media, basically uh, Facebook and Twitter. is uh, My Twitter is at David underscore KDF, and that's for Klingon Defense Force, but it is spelled uh, D-E-Y-V-I-D underscore KDF, and uh, that's basically a, a Klingon spelling of David. So... Uh, Cool. Um, and I'm Jerry. You can find me on Twitter at Jara Penguin. That's J-A-R-R-A-H Penguin or at Tumblr at trekkiefeminist.tumblr.com. And if you'd like to get in touch with our show, we are at Women at Warp. We are also on the iTunes. Uh, we love reviews if you have any thoughts on the show. Uh, we are on Facebook at Women at Warp, Twitter at Women at Warp, and you can email us at crew at women at warp.com. So thank you so much, uh, everyone, for joining us today. And thanks to everyone for listening. Thank you.